0: ahead and have a seat. As you do, I want to welcome you to another service at Hagerstown Church. It's uh, wonderful—the third week in a row—to not be preaching uh, all by myself. So, if you uh, if you could try to stay awake, smile every once in a while, and be a little bit better than the Charles Spurgeon bobblehead that usually is who I'm preaching to. Uh, <laughs> That would be great. So you could bobble every once in a while. He is in this pose with this finger pointed up to uh, Jesus on his throne. Speaking of Jesus on his throne, um, as I was thinking about that song, Jesus is Better, I thought about the gift that I received this morning. It was a homemade uh, gift that said, Happy Father's Day. It had five things listed out that they liked about me. Number three, I'll spare you number one and two. Number three was, you are so strong. Isn't that what we love about fathers? That they're strong. It's sad that they don't realize I'm not as strong as I'd like to think that I am. Or as strong as they even think that I am. But that's what we love about fathers. And I thought about today. Many of us, this this isn't a sweet day for you. Maybe it's a difficult day for you. Um, Maybe you think about the, the earthly father that you have. Maybe that brings less comfort and joy. Maybe you think about the fact that you're not a father yet, but you long to be. Even in that, I want to offer this. That our father, if you're in Christ, our father, he is so great. He's so much, he's worthy of everything that we could ever everything that we could ever say as we sang together just a moment ago he really is worthy of that and that's the god that we've been invited to worship this morning that's the god that we've been invited to pray to even now and and that's the god who has given us his word that we love and cherish we say this here that his word matters here and so we're going to take a moment a few moments if i'm honest and we're going to look at his word this morning and before we do that i want to invite you to pray with me ah. That you would listen to us this morning. That you would invite us into your presence to speak to you. To share our concerns. And to offer our humble praise. It is a mystery. It is a miracle. And it's a blessing that we claim this morning. Father, we recognize that we that there's no other name that we can claim this morning. There's no one stronger. There's no one mightier. There's no one smarter. There's no one that has better plans. There's no one that, can, that gives better gifts than you. And so we praise you for these things. We recognize you fully for who you are. And we pray that you would even reveal yourself even more through your word this morning. Father, we pray that specifically, as a result of this text being preached, that the fathers in this room would rise up. That we would be stronger men. That we would lead our homes and our church and even this city to a place of humble submission beneath you, Jesus. Father, we don't just pray that for you this church. We pray that for every church in Hagerstown. Father, we pray that for all the churches and men, even in Washington County, that you would continue, as you have, even in our own lives, in our own church, that you've raised up men and you've made us to be better fathers. Father, we pray that you would create even more of that in our lives, that you would sanctify each and every one of us. That we would raise up Jesus before the people that we're called to serve. God, we don't just pray that in this city and this county, across the state and nation, around the world, Father, we pray that you would raise up men who point their families and their cities to you. This is prayer. And we know that it's a possibility, and not just a possibility, but it's a promise. We know that there are so many that have fallen short and failed, many of them in this room, myself included. And yet you promised that you would bear fruit in our lives. And we've seen it. Father, for the list of things that we are ashamed of this morning, there's another list. It's a list of works that you are bringing to pass and bringing to bear in the lives of the men that are gathered here. And so we know we've seen it. You've promised us. We believe that you are continuing to sanctify us. You're continuing to change us into the image of your Son. So we trust that this morning. We praise you for that. We pray that that work wouldn't just be done, Father, for the men in this room. We pray that the families, we pray that from the oldest to the youngest, Christ would be formed in us. This is our prayer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So it's a privilege for us to continue the study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 4, and we're going to take a big portion of Mark, Chapter 4. We're going to tackle that this morning. So we're actually going to read and work through verses 1 through 20. So Mark, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Assuming you're there, you've got it in your word, and your copy of God's word, but if not, it's on the screen. Here we go. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, speaking of Jesus. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And, his teaching, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold... A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Another seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. The other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing. And yielding thirty fold and sixty fold and a hundredfold, and he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then... When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and sixtyfold and 100-fold. Let's ask the Lord to bless the region of his word. Father, we do ask that now. We recognize that there's no power in and of myself, in and of this people, to produce any fruit apart from you. So this morning we abide in you. We rest in you. We pray that you would work in us. Father, we believe that the seed that you sow in us will bring forth fruit. We ask it to be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so here's Jesus. He's teaching again. There on the sea, we're not exactly sure where he's at. There's uh, several options there for where he's at, but there's one particular place that many people believe that Jesus is speaking in, and that's called the Bay of Parumos. It's on the north uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee, between Capernaum and Tagba or Tabka. and uh, they're right there. They've actually done some tests. The the plain, the, it, it slopes down, the land slopes in, and it becomes this uh, really charming bay. And actually, some. Israeli scientists have done some tests, and there's been some other folks that have done some tests there, just just normal people getting on YouTube and doing some tests. They demonstrate that the human voice can really effortless, 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 effortlessly. There we go. Um, it's much easier to talk in the Bay of uh, Parables than to say that word right there that I won't try to say again. Um, but they can really just easily have their voice amplified in that bay to several thousand people on shore, it's really amazing. So we believe that that's—I believe that that's probably where Jesus is teaching at. This large crowd begins to gather around Jesus, and he gets into the boat. Remember, he had asked about a boat being prepared for him because they were pressing in. The crowd was growing and growing, and so as he as as was uh, uh, just a good method, he would get into that boat close to the to the shore. He'd get out just a little bit. He would sit down and he would begin to teach, and everybody would be quiet. Um, unlike the the crowd today this morning for me, uh, if everybody would quiet down, they could actually hear what Jesus was saying. And that particular morning, he began to speak to them in parables. The word "parable" is an interesting word. It it means something that is placed alongside something else for the purpose of clarification. It's a simile. It's like this. This is like that in this way. The purpose of a parable is to express in concrete terms or in a concrete picture something that is a bit abstract in a sense. So Jesus, when when he's using parables, he would talk about themes and relationships and circumstances that the people of that day would readily understand. So there he is on the shore of of Galilee. No doubt there's all types of farms and pastures all around him where people had been recently sowing seed. And with that in mind, and even in view, he begins to use uh, parables for their their benefit that uh, centered on agriculture or farmland. Now, before we get into exactly what he talked about, I want to just give this a helpful piece of advice. When we look at a parable, we want to be careful not to uh, confuse that with an uh, allegory. An allegory is different from a parable in the sense that a parable is saying this mainly one thing is like this one thing in this way. So an allegory has several points of similarities. This, every single thing in an allegory means something. That's not the same case in a a parable. And so we want to be careful not just in this parable, but as we continue through Mark, we'll see other parables. We want to be careful not to allegorize every single thing within a parable. And I'll point out some things that uh, I think are dangerous in this passage, perhaps as we get a little bit closer, a little farther into the text. I want to give you uh, an example of a parable this morning because I think it would help you to understand what a parable is. And so to illustrate... um, what a parable is. I'm going to give you one. Here we go. A parable is like a man who walks past a church and as he looks at this beautiful church, what he sees is stained glass windows. But as he looks from the outside on the inside, he doesn't think that the the stained glass windows are much to look at. As a matter of fact, they're very dull. The colors are not vibrant, not in the least. But if that man were to continue to walk around the church and enter into the main entrance and walk into the sanctuary of this old church that we're imagining together on a sunny day, what would his his, his thoughts then tend towards in relation to these stained glass windows? It would change. Why? Because his perspective changed. His location changed. From the outside, the windows, they don't look too great. But from the inside... He should see the purpose of the sun leaning or, or, or Casting its rays Through those windows And illuminating them and So the, the key teaching of my parable Is that, that your perspective Will change as your position changes You have to be standing in the right place To understand them and their meaning Does that make sense? So Jesus is using parables And it's important That you're standing in the right place Right there before Jesus Jesus begins to give parables. They can't be understood, really understood, rather, right, apart from the one who shares them. If you don't have the one who's sharing them explaining what they mean, then they don't make sense, and they won't make sense. And so if you want to know the meaning of Jesus' parables, this is what I, one of the things I want you to take from. If you really want to know the meaning of Jesus' parables, then you have to spend time with Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment. Jesus, here in chapter 4, uses three parables. They're all centered on agriculture. So they have this common theme, and they, they reflect on sowing and growth and, and harvest elements, and they all help us to see into the window, as it were, of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus teaches teaching about the kingdom of God. He wants them to know. They want to know, what's the kingdom? Tell us about your kingdom. And he begins to teach them. And how does he teach them? He teaches them through parables. The kingdom of God is like he often would say. So we see four, uh, or sorry, three parables here in chapter 4. This morning, I want us to look at the first parable. It's the parable of the sower. And So as we dive in, I want you to see right off what I believe is the main point. That's the main point that I want you to take with you. It's this. When Jesus sows the seed of the word, be prepared. There will be rejection and falling away, but there will also be incredible fruit. When Jesus sows the seed of the word, be prepared. There will be rejection and and falling away, but there will also be incredible fruit. So this section, or these first 20 verses, they're mainly talking about two things. Two things. And so if you want to write these two things down, these are the two areas that we'll camp out in. But one is Christology. One is Christology, and the other one is discipleship. We won't take an exhaustive look at either one of these, but if you're wanting to think through, like, what's what's the direction of our Of our sermon this morning It's going to be tracing through these two thoughts Christology, or the study of Christ And discipleship So first, let's look at Christology Study of Christ Look look first at verse number 3 It says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow If you don't speak this kind of language You don't even know what a sower or or, or sowing is And you just go uh, to the the days of you trying to, to, to stitch up something Or grandma trying to stitch up Let me say it another way and this is Josh McLean's version. Listen up, there once was a farmer who began to plant. <laughs> Listen up, there once was a farmer who began to plant. That's effectively what Jesus is saying here. And, and this may be too simple of a place for us to camp out, but I I we do this, we've done this several several weeks in a row, but I want us to spend some, some time here. You need to hear that. Behold, a sower went out to sow. From the days of the Garden of Eden. God the Father came to Adam and to Eve, and he pronounced the judgment on them, he said to them, Behold, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. This deliverer, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so for thousands of years, humanity had waited for that day. They had waited for for the head of the serpent to be crushed. And here now, Jesus is speaking in parables, and he's saying of the kingdom of of God, of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying, behold, listen, listen to me, a sower went out to sow, and that is wonderful news. If you forget, if you forgot that this week, if you forgot that there's something to celebrate, it's the fact that there has been a sower that has gone out, and the kingdom of God is breaking into time and space. It's not just a promise. It's now a reality. It's being fulfilled. Jesus is that sower. what is he doing? He is going out to sow. There's come a sower. If you're not glad for that, then something's wrong with you, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer, be encouraged by that. That, that. That sower, Jesus Christ himself, went out to sow. He went out to plant seed. There's come a sower. In verse 14, it says, the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. You might say, what's the word? You can imagine. It's the word of God. It's the good news that Jesus is preaching, that Jesus is bringing as the kingdom of God enters in time and space. That message, that good news, that word is this. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Be reconciled to God. That is the word that this sower, Jesus, is sowing. He's teaching about the kingdom, or the nature of the kingdom of God. And his first point to us is that God is the center of this action. God is the one that begins all action that relates toward salvation. He is the first cause. People say so often in their pain, and I understand, but they ask questions like, where is God? Where is God? Well, I can tell you where he's at. He's in the field right now. And he's sowing seed. That's where he's at. He's sowing seed. He's preaching the gospel. He's sending the gospel. So what happens when Jesus, who is the sower, sows the seed, which is the word of God? It's the main point. When Jesus sows the seed of the word, be prepared. There is going to be incredible fruit. There's going to be incredible fruit. Let's skip to the end of this passage. Look at verse 20. God is the sower, Jesus is the sower, and what is he sowing? He's sowing the word of God, the gospel. And what does verse 20 say about this sower and his seed? It says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30fold and 60fold and a hundredfold. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. It didn't mean a whole lot to me until I did some research. Tenfold. A return of tenfold on any crop that you had sown would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. To sow this amount and get tenfold back would just be wonderful. It would be almost miraculous. And so, Jesus speaking to these people in their language, according to their culture, says to them, There will be seed sown. On land that will bear fruit, on soil that will bear fruit 30 fold. And they're thinking, this is unbelievable that there would be that much fruit. This has got to be an outlandish, wildest story. That is miraculous. That's unbelievable. And they, Jesus begins to, or continues to talk, and he says, not only 30 fold, but also 60 fold. And they're like, no way. There's no way. This is just unbelievable. I can't follow it. And then Jesus says, even to 100 fold. 10 times. What would be considered miraculous? What would be considered a wonderful year? Jesus is saying that there is a, a, a harvest that's coming that will be so much greater than anything that you could ever imagine. So when we think of this idea, this topic of, of the study of Christ in the kingdom of God, you need to know this. That he is the great sower, and he is sowing that great seed, and that seed will bear fruit. It already is bearing fruit, and it has bore fruit. I'm to park here just for a minute. Last week when we looked at the text, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this, this sin that is unforgivable, when we read that text together, you're probably like me, and you think, there is a sin. When you read this whole passage, you think, there is a sin that can't be forgiven? And we... Stir past, we brush by. We automatically assume that, of course, there would be any sin that could be forgiven. Last week I pointed out that, that we were missing something there. Yes, there is a sin that will not be forgiven. But let's not pass over too quickly the fact that any sin will be forgiven. And especially the fact that Jesus said last week that all sin will be forgiven. Any sin except for this sin. If you're concerned about what that is, you weren't here last week. I encourage you to look it up. On our podcast, but we're not going to we're not going to rehash that this morning. But in a similar way, in a similar way, I want to encourage you to think about something that possibly you you missed over. Some of you need badly to hear this. You need to believe that God is sowing seed, and fruit will come from it. You need to believe that. You need to be reminded of that. The power is not necessarily in the sower. It's not in the soil. The power is in the seed. And so in this parable, Jesus is the sower. And yet in a secondary sense, we also who bear the word of God in our hearts and on our tongues, we also are sowers. So often I am tempted to believe that there will not be any fruit from the sowing that God has called me to do. And I wonder if you're with me. You would be so brave to admit that you wonder if the, the sowing that God uses you to sow, the, that the glorious seed of the gospel, grace, if you will see any results. We saw in the text just a moment ago as we read through it quickly. We've seen in our own lives something similar. We've, we've seen that when we've thrown that seed of the gospel out amongst our neighbors and co-workers and family and friends, that it's been picked away by the birds. It's not been received there wasn't any fruit from it maybe we've seen in our lives that we've planted the seeds and we've been we've rejoiced together even maybe even as a church because we saw a little bit of growth and something shot up even quickly and then it faded away maybe it was somebody that claimed to be a convert, placed their faith in jesus wanted to join the church quickly just as soon as they had come into the church, they left the church. Maybe you've experienced that and have been discouraged because of it. We've seen people choked out by the cares of this world, place their faith in Jesus, but at the same time place their faith in a million other things as well. We're choked out. So then we see these things in our past and we wonder, is it really necessary? Is it really important for us to go so seed? If we do, will it even be effective? It won't. I think if we, I I feel that if we believe that lie that Satan wants us to hear, we won't sow the seeds that we have been called to sow. I want you to know there is power in the seed. uh, Paul says that there's, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto what? Salvation, unto conversion, unto regeneration. It is the power of God. We've been called to be faithful to sow just like our Lord Jesus did. So when we think of Christ, when we think of Christ in the kingdom, remember that, yes, he is the great sower. He is sowing that good seed. And he has called us to do the same thing and that we will bear fruit. Just take a moment and look around. This gospel, the kingdom of God, has been sown throughout the world for 2,000 years. Here we are, worlds apart, eons apart as it were, and we are here celebrating the preaching of God's word, of this good seed that was sown in our hearts, and it has, in fact, borne fruit. So celebrate that. Don't believe for a second that there won't be fruit. Of course there will be. So Jesus is sowing the seeds of the word. And there are miraculous results. We've got to remember that this morning, the word of Christ in the kingdom of God. But second, I want you to see this: that this idea of discipleship, this idea of discipleship, there's there, it, there's a response. The seed there, there's a response to the, uh, or on those who hear the word. Right? What is their response when the when the seed is then thrown on the soil? What is the response? Well, this has to do with discipleship. So the message of Jesus, the gospel, thrown into the soil, then it's on to the soil, what the soil will do with the seed. There's a shift here uh, from uh, Christ and the word, the seed, to discipleship, to uh, man's responsibility. In verse 14, the seed is identified as the word, so the gospel. But in verses 15 and following, it shifts to the hearers. That's helpful for us. It, it, read through that again. It shifts from the, the seed being the word of God to the ship, or to the, the seed being then shifted to the hearers and their response. And that's helpful for us. Jesus is sowing the seed in the first explanation, or the first uh, rendition of the story. But then as he explains it, it's the soul's response that is the seed in the final half. So at the first half, it's all about Jesus and what he's doing his work in sowing the seed, the second half is about discipleship. And so I want you to think back again. We, we talked about last week a moment ago. I want you to think back again. Do you remember when we talked about Mark's sandwich? You'll see this repeatedly throughout Mark. Mark will, will tell a story, and then he'll shift gears, and tell another bit of a story, and then he'll shift back to the original story creating a sandwich and what you find in the middle is really where the main point that mark is driving on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that mark is driving home and so today we have another one of those sandwiches in the first part we maybe we could say the bread uh, the bread is the first the, the telling of the parable of the sower, and the final half is the explanation of that Jesus does that but then you have this middle part which is verses 10 11 and 12. 10 11 and 12 and this is where we get I really want to spend some time leaning into this this passage When Jesus first begins there when Mark first begins to record this account He says he began to teach by the sea and a large crowd gathered And so when you think about it, you kind of just assume that everybody's in unison there on the edge of the sea but As we look at verses 10 11 and 12 We see that that one group that unified group isn't so unified. It's actually divided There are two groups of people within that one group And he uh, identifies them. Let me me point them out to you. He uses these two. He he points out these two audiences. The first one is this. He says to you. In the second group, he says for those. If you you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to write in there to underline those two two things: to you and for those. And so Jesus, this is uh, this is part of the sandwich. It's not chronologically uh, in order. The, the, on the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is teaching He doesn't just tell that one parable There are other parables that he tells But later on in the day The disciples ask Jesus about the meaning of that parable And that is recorded there in the middle In 10, 11, and 12 And then he gives the explanation So anyway, when he does that, he identifies that there's the two you There's the, the real disciples The real followers of Christ Those who are truly walking in discipleship with Jesus and then there are those. Those other ones are the ones that he referred to and told us about in Mark chapter 3. They're the ones who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Those are part of this family who are rejecting the testimony that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. It, in that group of, for those that Mark lists out here, or offers for us, according to Jesus' words, those would include the scribes that have come from Jerusalem that were trying to argue with him and tell him that he was a devil or possessed by them. So this, we see that there are these two groups, and, and we see a further breaking down in that final section of Mark chapter four, one through twenty. Jesus breaks down the, these two groups even farther. Mark offers two groups. Um, they're, they're leading the the groups that the group that is to you inside of the kingdom, and for those and those are outside of the kingdom. But those who are outside the kingdom, he gives us Jesus does he gives us a, a further explanation. Of these outsiders, and, and how they got there and how we know that they're out there. He talks about those that, that, that had the seed fall on the, on the path. They didn't receive the, the, the word at all. These are outsiders. They're not part of the kingdom. He goes on to talk about those who had the seed thrown on the shallow soil. There was some reception. They received it with joy, but it shriveled up and died. Why? Because they were uncommitted. It was shallow. There was rocky soil there. He goes on to talk about the third grouping within that subgroup. And that's the those who the seed that fell on thorny soil. The soil is, is deep. And it welcomes everything. And the good seed of the gospel is choked out there. And finally, he talks about those who are inside of the kingdom, who are insiders. To you, he says. And that's the good soil. These are those who listen to Jesus. These are those who hear Jesus and give their lives to him. By the way, I want to point this out. This is where an allegory would be unhelpful if this was indeed an allegory, but Jesus himself claims that it is a parable. Mark's not saying that insiders and outsiders are irreversible distinctions. He's not saying that if you're in this particular instance, one of these types of soil, that you can't be this kind of soil. Or that if you're this kind of soil, you can't become that kind of soil. On an allegory, you would recognize that, hey, soil doesn't do a whole lot of moving, at least not on its own accord. Not not, not according to its own will, but here Mark's not saying. I want to point some things out to you. This will be exciting for you. Outsiders, in in the Gospel of Mark, outsiders are recorded as becoming insiders time and again. There was a demoniac in chapter five. There was the woman with the issue of blood in chapter five, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter seven, the, the Gentile centurion in chapter 15, and maybe even a scribe. We're not exactly sure. in Chapter 12, all of these making their way from an outsider outside of the kingdom of God to an insider, somebody who used to reject whose heart was hardened. Somebody who received it with joy, maybe even and it, and it went away these people in the outside group, not a part of the kingdom of God, are coming in and being welcomed into the kingdom of God. And the opposite is also true. Sadly, insiders becoming outsiders. We see this vividly in the life of Judas, who was an insider. no doubt there with Judas, that pronouncement to you has been given the secret. Judas was there in that group. And yet that insider, at the end of his life, it was evident that he had become an outsider. But those who are insiders, what will they do? Well, they'll hear, they receive, and they bear fruit. As verse says. And If they're not, if they're an outsider, they'll wither, and they will decay. So I want to take a deeper look at these uh, first three soils that comprise the outsider category, outside of the kingdom of God. There in verse 15 it says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word of that is sown in them. The idea is that the soil is hardened along the path from repeated use. Day in, day out. People walking along that path. What happens to that? Well, when it rains, it gets dusty, people walk back and forth. that Day after day, week after week, that that ground becomes very hard. There's no, there's, it's smooth even. There's no place for the seed to hide or to, to rest into a crook or a cranny. It is exposed to be kicked along the path and even to be picked up by the birds of the air. It can't find its place there in the soil, so it is eventually picked up by the birds. On the side of my house, there's this pathway that comes out of our side exit to the back of the house. And back behind the house, we have all kinds of uh, wonderful things. We have a grill, we have a smoker, we have a trampoline, uh, we have a, a shady spot where there are some hammocks hanging. You have our tools and the tool shed and the lawn mower. And, and uh, you also have a nest of bunny rabbits, and that's my dog wants to be back there. And so with all of these desirous locations located behind my house, the pathway that leads back to that area is what? It's worn down, and it is so frustrating. I don't want it to be muddy. I don't want it to be and yet it is. And time and again, We've tried to do things to that, that would remedy that and yet, because people walk on it, because the dog loves that path, it doesn't choose another, it wears it out. If we were to plant any seed there, it would just be kicked away, it would blow away. And I would argue that the trouble with this soil is it's not so much the birds as it is the hardness of the soil not so much the wind, it's not so much the dogs now, it's the fact that the soil is hard. And this is a common occurrence in the Bible. It regularly talks about people hardening their hearts against the message of God. Even last week, we saw a wonderful example of that. They're in, the li- in the lives of the scribes who came to Jesus and what did they do? When they saw the testimony of the Holy Spirit, of the, li- of the person of Christ, what did they do? They hardened their hearts and they rejected that testimony. Doesn't hang around. Satan has drawn them away. He's stolen away the seeds. Hearts are too hard to receive. And these were in the crowd. They're there in that crowd. They're not part of the kingdom, but they're hearing the parable of Jesus. They had already rejected the word of God. Now, as that seed fell, it was being picked away there, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, on the shore. There was another soil that Jesus talked about here. It was the shallow soil or the rocky soil. Look at verse sixteen. It says, "And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away." Let's go back to my backyard again. Recently, my wife and I—we, uh, she was so helpful in this process—we moved our shed big shed, we moved it. She was helpful. But uh, what she was really helpful in was telling me that, hey, we can't leave this big dirt spot. We've got to put some grass there. And so we, we did. We got some sod, and we got that sod, and we prepared the soil. We rolled the sod out, and we very faithfully watered that soil three times a day or more. Why did we do that? Because the sod that we laid, it had what? It had no root. So we had to be very careful. We wanted to make sure that it wouldn't wither. It wouldn't dry out. So regularly, for fear that it would not endure the, the long days or the, or the high heat, we water it. sad to say, and I report to you, that some of the sod didn't make it. Why? Again, because it didn't have the depth of roots. We've all seen this. I alluded to it just a moment ago. We've seen people that with joy receive the word of God, and it seems as if there's going to be some substantive change in their life, and yet... Over time, they do not produce fruit, and in fact, wither away. One thought I had in studying the Gospel of Mark was the life of Mark. You remember the first week as we looked at the Gospel of Mark, when we first began to study, we talked about this, the identity of the, of the author of this book and who, what, it, what he was guilty of. There was a time in the life of Mark where he... Was traveling on a missionary journey with the great apostle Paul. And then he wasn't. What happened? He abandoned Paul. He left. And what does Paul say of him? He's not profitable. He's not producing any fruit. He's abandoned the gospel ministry. Yeah, he was all excited when we left port. When everybody had packed us the care packages and patted us on the back and he an offering, and, and it was so exciting. They sang songs and prayed, and it was just so exciting. But when the real work began, the joy that Mark had dissipated. And what happened? He abandoned. So there was a time in Mark's life where we could say Mark acted like this soil right here, that there was no roots. There was no seriousness. There was no, there was no commitment in his life. acting as if he were an outsider. And so there's a crowd and part of the outsider group, they have no roots. They're not committed. They enjoy hearing Jesus' message, but they have no roots. They like what he has to say. They like what he has to offer. He's entertaining quite a bit. He offers some encouragement, a good shot in the arm on Sundays. They're encouraged by that. But then when the things get serious, they're gone side with Jesus until he makes a statement that the world or culture rejects and then they side with the world and they reject and hate Jesus for it. They're gone. This is all too commonplace today. Throughout the church, all across Facebook, social media, we we read stories on a regular basis of, of people who we had respect for. We believed they were inside of us. We believed that they were truly part of the kingdom of God and yet the words of John they went out from us. Why? Because they weren't of us. And had they been of us, they would have, what? They would have continued with us. They were shallow Christians. They denied Christ because of the pressures of culture. You can't believe that Jesus would say something like this, not in this day and age. How could he get away with that? And they, they leave the church. Why? Rock Shallow. Uncommitted. So that's the second soil, but there is a third soil, and that third soil is the thorny soil. Look back at your scripture, verse number eighteen. It says, "And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires." For other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. To these folks, they gladly receive the word again, similar to the shallow to And They even begin to grow. They're actually growing. There's growth in these seeds, amongst these seeds that are thrown into the the, uh, thorny patch. What happens? They never actually produce fruit. Why? Because it's choked out by everything else that is around them. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. When you say yes to everything, you end up saying no to the things that are most important. When you say yes to everything, you end up saying no to the things that are most important. That's true on every level. Fathers, that's true, isn't it? With your time, one of the most important things that God has called us to do is to shepherd the hearts of our children. And there's so many other things that are saying, hey, I'm important too. Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to go remember these good old days and talk about this and be a part of this and join this club and whatever? Work these extra hours? What ends up happening when we say yes to everything? What's most important, we end up saying no to effectively. That's really what's happening in the thorny soil. They desire to serve God. They desire to hear the word of God. They desire to even bear fruit, but what happens? cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word out, and it proves unhappable. Or, I, I, I'm sorry, unfruitful. So the cares of this world, they're, they're this. They're distractions. They're things that draw our gaze away. That draw our ears away. Who is this man? This worldly-minded man? Well, it's the man in James chapter 4. He's consumed with his own pleasures and passions. He's of no spiritual good. It's the man who's ruled by the law of sin in Romans chapter 7. He's the one who's trapped in the lie that says, one more dollar is all you need to be happy. One more hour is all I need at work. One more title, one more degree. There's more to this description than just money. It's the cares of this world. It refers to the the fact that fame prominence and acceptance can all choke out cancel the growth and kill the growth of the word in our lives. I can't think of a better example or way to illustrate this than Mark chapter 10. It's The rich young ruler. Does he not desire to hear the words of Jesus? Of course he does. When we see it begin to bud. He hears the he hears the gospel. He hears the testimony of, from the lips of our Lord and what does he do? He comes to him and he says, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this, and Jesus says to him "What? Something that he can't hear." That growth that was beginning to take place in his life, the seed that was sown in his heart, is quickly choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Or of riches. This is the group that thinks they need more than Jesus. You in that group This one. See, oftentimes you don't even realize what group you're in. That's one of the beautiful things of this passage. That's one of the reasons why Jesus is teaching all of these people and gives the explanation to those who are in the kingdom. He's warning them. He's saying there are thorns in your life that will grow up and they'll choke out the seed. I wondered this week. There was a connection between Jesus' rejection of Satan's temptation there in the wilderness. Satan offered him the entire world, essentially. I'll give you everything if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus had come to reclaim the kingdom, right? He had come to do to make war with Satan. Satan said, "Hey, let's bypass the cross. Let's put all this behind us. I'll give you everything that you've come here to get if you'll just bow down and worship." You. See, Jesus had come to say yes to the Father. here he's tempted to say yes to Satan. And you might think for a second that you can do both, but you cannot do both. I can't help but think of the irony there is Jesus in the week of His Passion, The day that he's crucified, what, is he, what does he have placed on his head? A crown of thorns. I don't know if Mark intended, I don't know if the Holy Spirit intended for us to see that this morning, but I can tell you this. There's a warning in that time. And that is this, that we cannot serve God and man. We can't serve God and Satan. We can't serve God and ourselves. We can't serve God and riches. That is the deceitfulness that we can be overcome with. Choke out the likeness. There'll be no fruit. And so we have the hard soil or the soil that Satan steals the seed from we have the the, the the rocky soil, or what I would call the shallow soil, the bedrock right underneath, and the the, the, the the seeds that grow roots, but only so deep, not deep enough. Then you have the thorny soil, the, where the seed grows, it takes root, it begins to grow, but before it can produce fruit, it's choked out by all the other cares of the world. Then you have this fourth soil. This fourth soil would be That which comprises those who are inside the kingdom of God, the insiders. And so remember, you've got this large group there on the shore. There really are two groups there inside of that group. And one is the outsiders of the kingdom of God. And they are the three soils. But then you have the insiders. They're the fourth soil. They are the good soil. Look at verse 20. It says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Remember, that is... That's an extraordinary, miraculous growth in return. But it is not, it's not surprising that a healthy plant will bear fruit. Many of you have planted gardens, and even now you're beginning to eat the, the, the benefits and the fruit out of the garden. You're not surprised. Why? Because you that's what healthy plants do. And so you've done the work, you've planted the seeds, it's begun to grow, and now it's bearing fruit. So that's not surprising to us, but the the, the, the nature of his success is wildly amazing. The people who are engaged in the fourth kind of here, they're insiders. And what does it take to be an insider? How do you truly know if you're an insider? Here's what here's how you know: we you, you hear, you receive, and you bear fruit. You hear, you receive, and you bear fruit. Those are the marks of a true disciple of Jesus. We looked at this a few months ago. What does a disciple do when well, he learns? He follows his master. He listens. And this is what we are to do as well. This is what a true disciple of Jesus does. What's interesting to me is that one could <clears throat> there's one child. as of yeah, there's one parable but you still have two responses. Four really. Ultimately two for our purposes. It's shocking. What what divides them? What makes them different? Verses ten and eleven and twelve again they speak to that. And they tell us about how parables they veil the truth from those who have no appreciation for it. That a parable can actually veil the truth from those who have no appreciation for it. Verses twenty 1 through 25, which we'll look at next week, they emphasize the opposite of that. Now, parables ultimately reveal the truth to those who consider them carefully and try to understand them. So the two passages really balance each other out. Parables, they blind those who wish to be blinded, and they give vision and sight to those who wish to see. Jesus teaching the parables here, it really it, it serves as a two-edged sword. It's, it's, it's judgment to those who are outside. It's judgment to those who reject him. But it's life to those who are inside. In the parable of the sower. It, it's, it's almost like that Old Testament story of when the, the, the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites. And what happens? Well, God sends this cloud. What does the cloud do? It separates the two. And on one side, it's, a, it's protection, it's darkness against the Egyptians, but on the other side, it's light and safety. So the same cloud, depending on whether you were in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, in the family of God or out of the family of God, would do opposite things. John expresses this well, what Mark's saying to us, what he's teaching us there in John chapter 9, verse 39, he says, For judgment, Jesus says, I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. blind. Those who hate God, those who think they see, those who reject the Holy Spirit, those who have hardened their hearts, what what does a parable do for them? It blinds them further. To those who would see God. To those who receive the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, what? What? What, the, what happens in a parable? while well, their eyes are open. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through okay. 10, is the Old Testament passage that, that's being quoted here in this middle section, and it, it's describing the, the hard-heartedness of Israel. And it mentions here, emphasizes the fact that Jesus speaks the parable to outsiders really as a form of prophetic warning, maybe even judgment. He's warning them. He warns them of the serious consequences for both Jew uh, Jew and Gentile if they don't open their hearts to him, And yet, at the same time, he's warning them because there's still room for repentance. So if they'll begin to receive the word, if their hearts will soften, they can become an exile. As we come to a close here, I want to share this with you. An observation. There is a component of time that you can't forget about. There's a component of time Only time will tell what type of soil, what results the seed will bear in your life. Again, we look at the the life of Mark. There were certain instances and times in his life where you'd say there's no fruit, there's no hope uh, of conversion in this man's life. There's no hope that he's an insider. He's part of the kingdom of God. Paul would have been the first to say that. And yet, at the end of his life, so clearly evidence the fruit that God bore through this Man's life, even now as we read the gospel, which he sent under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But how do you know? Well, keep this in mind. The time is a serious component. The preaching of the gospel is what reveals or tests the nature of the soul, and it shows the true nature of the heart. And in a way, the seed of the gospel, when it's sown, it can serve as either judgment or blessing, it can serve as salvation. Also serve as a nation. So, what are, we all, what are we to do with all of this? Is it possible to become good soil? Can, how can I become a better soil? How can I become a better disciple? Well, I'll point something out to you as we come to a close. The, the framing of this parable in verses 3 and 9, the butt ends of it, or the book ends, if you will, what do they say? What's the first word and what's the last word? I'll give you a hint. It's the same word. It's not an accident. Jesus is speaking to this crowd, he says, listen, and he ends it, seated in the ESV, but he ends it with the, with the exact same word, the exact same word. He says, listen at the beginning, and he says, listen at the end. That is what a, a disciple, a true disciple is to do. That is what those who are in the kingdom of God actually do being a disciple is not trying to make something of ourselves. It's allowing both the sower and the seed to produce a harvest which we are incapable of producing. But how do we do it? We do it through hearing. How does it happen? By listening. Discipleship hangs on that term. And so we've got to listen. We've got to pay attention. We'll look at that quite a bit more next week. I want to point something out to you in this vein of listening. The first three types of soil, those with no root, those who uh, the saint steals the word, and those who uh, wealth and worth the desire choke out the word, they're all said to have heard the word. But here's the issue. Each time in the Greek, it's using a tense that, that points to a one-time action, a point in time where they heard. That's it. It almost without giving too much emphasis to this, it almost is saying it went in one ear and out the other. There was a short period of time, or a period of time, rather, to be honest with you, a period of time where they heard, but that action is not continuing on. They're not continuing to hear. And what's so beautiful that we can see here in the text is that the fourth time when it speaks of the good soil, it's in the present tense, not the errors. Which is to say this, it's a continued action. It's continuing to happen. It's going on. so, the work of a Christian, the work of a disciple—those who are in the kingdom of God—are people who don't just hear it in one ear, out the other, but people who are regularly hearing the teaching and the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus. So, regardless of Satan, persecution, and the cares of this world, they all—they spell havoc for the Christian or for those who well, who would have the Gospel bear fruit in their lives. They're all just casual listeners. They're casual hearers. Their failure to to hear confirms them as outsiders. But our success in hearing confirms that, and the fruit that bears consequently confirms that we are insiders. So the parable of the sower begins and ends with this call to hear, to listen. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, Ten times That statement has made that command Listen listen. Ten times In the gospel of Mark chapter 4 The word word So what are we to listen to? We are to listen to The word Who are we to hear? In the first section Jesus is teaching to the masses Mark fast forwards and then he Inserts this conversation That Jesus and his disciples had later that day Jesus says to them, he says, to you, he's sitting around, maybe around a campfire, thinking back over the day and how it went on, but thinking about what Jesus taught, they're asking questions in their mind, and what what do they say? we really like to know what this means. And Jesus looks to them and says, Jesus, in their presence, catch this, says, to you has been given. What he's saying there is this, not just. The explanation that he's about to give, but the Christ Himself, there in their presence—that is who, that is what has been given to them. Think about that. Where are we to listen to? Where to listen? Where to hear? Are we to, are we to listen to endless blogs and podcasts and read every headline, especially in these tumultuous times? Is that what we're to do—to become drunk on information, or? Have we, the people of God, been given Christ himself, his testimony, and his word? That's what we've been given. So we're a people of the word, we're a people of the book, and what are we to do? We are to listen. In the sense of chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, Jesus' parable confirms the states of the people's hearts. They had already hardened their hearts. When that gospel message came and was rejected or didn't bear fruit or whatever, ultimately rejected, it just demonstrated that they truly were, in a sense, cast judgment on them. Why? Because they were themselves outsiders. This morning, I want to invite you to come inside of the building. To come inside of that church. Instead of looking at the dull, unimpressive stained glass windows from the outside, would you come inside? Sit at the feet of Jesus and receive that blessing that he has given to us. The secrets of the kingdom. Because he is speaking this morning. That is our only hope. To bear fruit. That we be found in Christ and at his feet. Church, would you pray with me? Father, this is our prayer this morning. That we would be found at your feet. Jesus. As you teach, we would listen. And they're out this week as we go. We will be marked by people with our hand to our ear.